In the suburbs, which were the hotly contested part of the country this time around, the phenomenon of white suburbanites, that is to say those with a college degree and a job in six figures or a professional career, are moving pretty rapidly into the Democratic Party. And certainly 50 years ago, they were Republicans. That was the base of the Republican Party. So I think education, which is a form of culture, is the fundamental divide. There are all sorts of other ways in which we are divided up racially, regionally, and philosophically. But I think if you want to figure out how an American is going to vote, the best single way to know it is by whether or not they have a college education. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. It is exactly three months until the elections in Germany. And these aren't just any elections. They are the first time in many years that Angela Merkel will no longer be on the ballot. After leading the country since the 2000s, she is stepping down as Chancellor of Germany. I can sense among my friends outside of Germany a lot of concern about the immediate future of the country. A lot of concern about the fact that one of the last moderate, decent leaders is leaving the scene and that Germany could soon experience the same kind of turmoil as the United States had for the last four years under Donald Trump, that Italy has had for much of its history, that France may have if Marine Le Pen once again comes through to the second round of the elections next year. And even though I'm somebody who is perennially somewhat skeptical of Germany and somebody who has obviously warned about the rise of populism for a long time and the ways in which it undermines democracies, I'm here to tell you, don't worry too much about these elections. The far-right alternative for Germany is actually down in the polls from the result they had four years ago. Uh, they will retain a sizable presence in parliament, in the Bundestag, and since they have gone more and more extreme, that is something to be saddened about. But they will be nowhere close to blocking coherent coalition from taking shape, and they certainly will not be in the government in any way, shape, or form. The two candidates who are most likely to succeed Angela Merkel as chancellor have strengths and weaknesses. Armin Laschet, the candidate of the Christian Democrats, looks a lot like other German chancellors, somewhat shapeless in policy, not very coherent, a man of compromise without very clear ideological profile. He reminds me in some ways of Helmut Kohl, the long-time German chancellor of the 80s and 90s. He also reminds me of what Angela Merkel looked like before she took office. His main competitor is Annalena Baerbock, the leader of the Green Party. Now, if you're in the United States, that might sound very alarming to you. It might remind you of somebody like Jill Stein, who was uh, closer to Vladimir Putin than she was to democratic leaders around the world. But especially on foreign policy, the German Green Party is uh, very moderate. Somebody argued recently that they are the closest that Germany has to a neoconservative party. I think that's not exactly right, but the Greens are very strong in their alliance with the United States. They're very outspoken in their criticisms of Russia and of China. And so a foreign secretary from the Green Party, or as maybe a little less likely, a chancellor from the Green Party, would not jeopardize Germany's standing in the world. It would not question Germany's belonging in NATO. It would not undermine the transatlantic partnership. So to me, the puzzle actually is why Germany is doing so much better than many other leading democracies. Why it is that I have less worry about the upcoming elections in Germany than I have about those in France next year, or for that matter, those in the United States in 2024. I don't yet have a coherent answer 
to that. I'm going to try and come up with one and let you know in the next weeks and months. But in the meanwhile, stop worrying and look forward to this election as one of a few in which democracy is not on the ballot. Well, today it's a special pleasure to speak to George Packer. George has been on this podcast twice in the past. He's a staff writer at The Atlantic, a winner of many fancy literary prizes and just one of the best writers in America and the world today. I particularly love The Unwinding as well as uh, his last book, which we discussed on the podcast, which was a really original biography of Richard Holbrook. But his new book, which is out soon, is Last Best Hope, America in Crisis and Renewal. It's a wonderful meditation and reflection on what we've learned about America in 2020 and what that means for where the country might head. And our conversation reflected this. It was, I think, a very reflective way of trying to process this political and cultural moment. I learned a lot from it. I'm sure you will too. George Packer, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Yasha Monk. George, you've been really trying to figure out this political moment in your latest work. And there are many strands to that. So I'm looking forward to going through those in this conversation. I guess the third question I have recording this in mid-May of 2021 is where does the presidency of Donald Trump, which thankfully has now been over for about a third of a year, leave us? Where should it leave our understanding our thoughts about, our faith in, or fears for America? Well, first, we really need to stop and take in the achievement of getting rid of Donald Trump, because I think you've pointed this out as well. No other country with an elected populist demagogic leader has managed to get rid of that leader. They seem to have a way of just sticking around through a mix of popular support and despair and coercion. And the American people got rid of Donald Trump and it was incredibly close and it was in the middle of a pandemic. And I don't think he would have lost if it had not been for the pandemic. I think we would be in a second Trump term. So that is an achievement and is one ray of light to not lose sight of because there's always reasons for despair. But his presidency is going to be with us for the rest of our lives, in a sense, because it just exposed something that perhaps we'd had a glimmering of, but had not been obvious until we saw how far we could sink in the Trump presidency. And I resist the idea that Trump is the fault of half the country. Yes, half the country elected and almost reelected him. But in a sense, the whole country produced him a failure on that scale required the whole country. And by that, I mean different social groups, different trends, different political habits, all gave us a situation in which someone like Trump could emerge as a powerful figure and even as president. You make this point about half America and all of America in your latest book, which is out in a few weeks. I've been reading it with great pleasure, Last Best Hope. In a way, it feels like you've started to chronicle that even before the rise of Donald Trump and the unwinding and other work of yours. Tell us about what you think Trump revealed about those two halves of America. What does it reveal about the thoughts and flaws of the half of America, which I take it you mean the half that voted for Trump, but then also the thoughts and flaws of the half that didn't necessarily vote for Trump, but that you think is also in some larger sense responsible for making this phenomenon possible? Well, don't get me wrong. I blame the 74 million Americans who, knowing everything we've learned about Trump during his presidency, nonetheless voted to reelect him. I put a tremendous amount of responsibility on them and also the three quarters of them who insist that he was reelected and that the election was stolen from him. That lie has planted a kind of toxic radioactive, <laughs> I don't quite know what metaphor to use, something that will be with us for years and years. It will not go out. It's going to continue to burn away. And that is the responsibility of the people who have been credulous and who have been insistent and who were in some ways shaped by Trump's 30,000 
recorded lies. Those lies, I think, are the longest lasting effect of the presidency of Donald Trump. They're like an isotope that will just never die out. So put the blame where it belongs, whether it's the hatred or the credulousness or the indifference, kind of a nihilistic shrug of the shoulders or the despair or all of the above of the people who voted for him, or even a kind of just desire for entertainment. I think Trump just left people mesmerized in some ways by the nonstop performance, and some people just wanted more of it, and it made them feel good. But we're all in some ways to blame because I think the country had reached a point in which we were so mutually antagonistic And there was so little mutual trust between different groups, different parties, different social classes, different races, that we drove each other into extreme corners that became self-caricatures almost of whether it's the professional class with its sense of moral and intellectual superiority, as well as its economic security that looked down on the non-educated, the working class, those who seemed like, you know, they were the lumpen and vice versa. So I feel as if we reached a point in which different groups were in a ferocious competition for status and for revenge. And Trump saw that and just played into it every day of his presidency, including throughout the pandemic, by setting groups against each other. And it turned out we were easily set against each other. Why was it so easy to turn Americans against one another? Let me ask you about that, because I think I fully agree with that point as a description of the present. I'm struck by the extent to which Americans, broadly speaking, of my social milieu, people who went to good colleges, people who live in the big cities, people who have you know pretty interesting and engaging jobs, look down on those people who they perceive as lacking those things, on people who only have a high school degree, on people who don't live on the coasts. And that social distance at this point feels much bigger, much larger than it does in Germany where I grew up or in Italy where I've spent a lot of time or even than it does in England, which is a deeply class-based society. I guess I have two questions. One is I don't know that I know America and American history well enough to know whether this would have been different 30 or 60 years ago. So do you think that this mutual inability to understand and this mutual disdain has grown over time or has it always been there? I mean, I guess the second question is, if it has grown, if it is worse as a problem today than it was 30 or 60 years ago, what's the reason for that? Well, to answer the first question, let's say 50 years ago, I think this is a 50-year phenomenon. 50 years ago, we were divided and mutually antagonistic in other ways. I mean, above all by race, because really 50 years ago, we were just beginning to make Black Americans legally full citizens after hundreds of years in which they were second class or worse. And then women were also second class citizens 50 years ago. So were other minority groups. So I think the big change of the last 50 years in one direction has been to make hitherto disenfranchised groups more equal, more empowered, more full part of American life, not fully. And there is more to do, but that has been an important, really a crucial trajectory. But at the same time, economically, we've become a hierarchical, a class-based society in a way that maybe hadn't been true since the beginning of the 20th century, since the Gilded Age, the robber baron age. And that continues relentlessly, no matter who's president, no matter whether the economy is doing well or badly, no matter whether we're at war or at peace, that has been the core phenomenon of the last half century is economic inequality growing and based more and more on education. Of course, there's a 1% that has benefited greatly from tax cuts, deregulation, the whole menu of Reagan-era economic policy. But I think more importantly, there's a top 10% or a top 15% who have done very well because 
of education and professional jobs that have been the winners in the economy in the last, say, 30 or 40 years, and they've passed it on to their children. It's called the meritocracy. Your talents and abilities and effort will generate your reward, but it's now an inherited meritocracy. In other words, it's a kind of aristocracy where your talents and abilities are almost with you at birth because there's so many walls and so many barriers to advancement if you're not already born into a family that is on that track of professional and academic success. So that has created a class, which I would call a, yeah, a class of special privileges. And that has warped everything because it's created resentment, mutual scorn, mutual hatred, and yes, a certain snobbery among the educated class toward those who are not because they see them as failing because the meritocracy says it's your own fault. If you don't make it, everyone has a chance. If you don't make it, it's on you. And that personalizes failure and losing in a way that I think has created a tremendous amount of social friction. A lot I agree with in that. And I think it's very important that the nature of the economic divide in the United States in many ways doesn't feel like it's the 1% versus the 99%. It's the top 10 or the top 20% uh, versus the rest of the society. And I think that puts a lot of people, probably a lot of listeners to this podcast, in a more uncomfortable position than we might think, because they actually are part of a class that reaps the benefits and that is perhaps even part of a cultural divide. And then we're sort of somewhat looking down at people part of a cultural divide. You know, it's easy to say, well, I'm not a millionaire, I'm not a billionaire. So, you know, I'm not part of a financial aid or I'm not part of the elite at all. But, you know, if you have a fancy postgrad degree and have a six-figure salary, you are very much part of that winning group and winning class. And you're also beginning to generate wealth that leads to investments. And so you're actually becoming part of the investor class as well as part of the professional class. And the combination of those two makes your position tremendously secure. And the gap between you and the other 85% grows all that much bigger. So all of that seems right to me. And yet... I wonder whether the economic picture explains everything. Now, you know, there's this sort of simplistic debate where it's economics versus race. And if it's not economics, it's race. And if it's race, it can't be economics. And that's, as I've talked about in many episodes of this podcast, far too simplistic. Racial animus can be driven by economic factors. But also, I think, things can be cultural in certain respects without being about race. And so, you know, let's take two people who are within the top 15 to top 20%. And one of them is a businessman in small town Tennessee who does very well for themselves, who's in the local country club, who has probably a college degree from a good regional university, you know, perhaps an MBA from a regional university, easily makes six figures. And then let's look at somebody who is a let's say, psychoanalyst in New York City, right? Those people may be in a very similar economic class. They may both be white, but the cultural and political distance between those two people also seems enormous. And it also seems much larger than it was 30 or 50 years ago. And the explanation for that doesn't seem to me to be primarily economic. They're both economic winners. They're both probably able to buy fancier cars and have fancier vacations than the parents or grandparents would have done 50 years ago if they'd been in equivalent social positions then. You're right. And that gap has grown and it's a cultural gap. It's a religious gap. I think that's a huge part of it. The secularization of American cities and the coasts has been an enormous phenomenon in the last half century. And the pulling away from the modern world, in a sense, of small towns, rural areas, the South, whole regions really, is a reaction to that and is a kind of self-protective or a kind of a reinforcement of an identity that becomes more and more important as threats grow in the form of secularism. But I do think that that Tennessee businessman, if he or she has a college degree and more and a post-college degree, might well have voted for Biden last year 
because it really seems to be education that is the most fundamental dividing line in America today. Trump's share of non-college degree whites was something like 64%. And his share of college-educated whites was more like 38%. That's a huge gap. And it's kind of the key gap. It's the gap that both defines the two parties against each other and is dividing Americans more and more into groups. And that gap also exists in the Midwest and even to some extent, although less so in the South. And it's how Biden managed to win. So in the suburbs, which were the hotly contested part of the country this time around, the phenomenon of white suburbanites, that is to say those with a college degree and a job in six figures or a professional career, are moving pretty rapidly into the Democratic Party. And certainly 50 years ago, they were Republicans. That was the base of the Republican Party. So I think education, which is a form of culture, is the fundamental divide. There are all sorts of other ways in which we are divided up racially, regionally, and philosophically. But I think if you want to figure out how an American is going to vote, the best single way to know it is by whether or not they have a college education. That seems right. And I think it poses real problems to university in their self-conception. You know, universities like to think, look, we're uniting the country by flying our admissions counselors out to talk to people from high schools that aren't highly represented at our schools, some of which may be, you know, schools in tough neighborhoods in big cities, but some of them also may be rural schools in Montana or in Nebraska. And let's get those students whose families haven't had contact with these fancy universities and get them here. And in a way, of course, that's true because their classmates may learn something about the breadth and the diversity of this country and these people will have opportunities. But most likely, those kids will never move back home to the places they came from. They're going to move to the fancy or the gentrifying neighborhoods of the big cities. They'll go back home for Thanksgiving and Christmas. But other than that, they are in fact being taken out of those communities and just sort of changing sides in the great cultural divide. And it's just a huge effort to try to get out and into. When I was researching Last Best Hope, I came across a figure that it is just as hard now as it was in 1954 for an American of like the working class or below to get into Harvard, Yale, or Princeton. In other words, with all that supposedly standardized testing, affirmative action, and meritocracy generally, including recruitment efforts like what you're describing, have tried to achieve, we've made no progress in terms of making top universities a genuine lifting up of Americans into the middle and upper middle class. Yeah, that's very sobering. I think about the role that universities play in all of this. Let's talk about the pandemic and the way that that has exposed the cultural fracturing of America and the institutional weakness of America, our collective inability to deal with this disease in a convincing way. I mean, given the success of the vaccination campaign, which is stalling somewhat now because of vaccine hesitancy, but which was much more successful than it was in Europe and so on. Some of America's strengths are more strongly in view again than perhaps when you finished the last revisions of the book. But your description of our inability to deal with the enormous toll of infections we've had throughout 2020 and for the first months of 2021, nevertheless show things that we would have, that I would have taken for granted, but I think you would have taken for granted about the ability of public health institutions the ability of a medical system to contain a pandemic and our real failure on this. What does that teach us about the reality and the promise of America? Yeah, I mean, almost every day last year after the pandemic started, I went to the Worldometer website that showed the country rankings in infections, deaths, etc. And we were at the very top the entire year for infections and deaths, way beyond our proportion of the world's population. And that chart, to me, was the single biggest indictment of this country. And again, Trump plays a very powerful role. There was no national plan. There was no national effort. It was rhetoric, lies, feints in one direction or another, and then kicking it to the states, blaming the states, scapegoating the states, and then actually pitting Americans against one another in order to try to generate support for his reelection. So from the top, we learn we need 
a wise, competent, caring, and just basically effective national government to do this. But we also learned that some of our institutions, like the CDC, were just woefully inadequate. Their inability to come up with a test in the crucial early weeks and months of 2020, which meant we were blind. We had no idea where it was, how rapid it was spreading, how extensive it was. And so we were unable to track it and to contain it. And the CDC, which is 10,000 advanced degrees and billions of dollars, but I think a sort of sclerosis that has set in in the federal government for lots of reasons, I would say politicization of bureaucracies that should be to some degree immune from politics. The fact that the head of the CDC is a political appointee, as are 3,000 positions in the federal government, which is far, far more than in any European country. And a kind of hesitancy, a risk aversion, a, a sense of just cover your ass and try not to make a mistake and don't, for God's sake, get on the news. It's not all there is to federal employees because, of course, there's idealism and there's commitment and there's sacrifice and service. But that becomes a culture that sets in in a lot of government bureaucracies, including the CDC. So the experts who people on the left constantly invoked as here's who we should listen to, here's what we should follow. It turned out they made so many mistakes that it gave a tremendous amount of fuel to the arguments of the populists who were saying, no, we are not going to listen to the experts because they don't know what they're talking about. What are some of those mistakes? Masking doesn't matter. You don't need to wear a mask. We were told by the CDC, Trump went down to Georgia in the first week of March and announced that anyone who wanted a test could get one. And Robert Redfield was standing right next to him nodding, kind of looking uneasy, but certainly not contradicting him, allowing the president to lie and tell a lie that was actually quite a destructive one. And many others that are inevitable that we took a long time to figure this virus out. And in some ways, all of this was inevitable. And it's very hard to find a country that has handled it really, really well. There were few. But even now, Taiwan is having a big outbreak. And I had written in my book that Taiwan, Rwanda, Norway, and New Zealand were like examples of social solidarity and trust in government that we don't have and that therefore did well and we did badly. I'm not so sure that that point holds up all that well, given how countries with a lot more social trust and trust in government have done, especially with the vaccination. So maybe it was just inevitable that we would mess up, but that we should mess up so badly that more than half a million Americans would die seems an indictment of both our the president, our government, and all the fault lines in our society that the virus exploited. Economic inequality, mutual distrust and dislike, red versus blue, masks versus anti-masks. In all those ways, the virus, which could have united us because after all, we're all vulnerable to it, nonetheless showed every fault line that we had. I compared it to maybe a little bit much, but to strange defeat, the account of the fall of France in 1940 by the French historian and resistance fighter Marc Bloch, who showed how the collapse of France before the German invasion had been years in coming, because a culture that was in decline, each class sort of protecting its own interests and not looking out for any greater good, and a growing kind of defeatism led to France's collapse. And I think you could say in a less melodramatic way, similar things led to our collapse before the coronavirus. That seems convincing and deeply disheartening, I have to say. I remember for three months, every single front page lead headline in the New York Times must have been about COVID-19. You know, it felt like there was no other topic because the pandemic was so all-consuming. And then, of course, the video of the horrible killing of George Floyd started to circulate and the attention of America shifted to racial injustice in the country, to police brutality in the country. And suddenly we were talking still about the pandemic, but also about the cultural shift that has happened through these protests and then in the wake of them. How does that fit into the picture you're painting of America in 2020? and where the America of 2020 leaves us for the coming years. The protests took me by complete surprise. And 
the scale of them, which was unprecedented, the largest in American history, the intensity, how long they lasted, and even the focus of them took me by surprise because here we were in this state where thousands of people were dying every day because of negligence and indifference and failure of the government. And that was not what the protests were about. So it was a change of subject that I, at first, couldn't grapple with. But really what the protests did was to return us to the subject that is always there in American history and that goes quiet for periods, but that is always going to come back because it's the most fundamental way in which we are an unequal society. And I was reading Tocqueville around that same time, and Tocqueville says the thing that struck him the most about America, coming from aristocratic France, was what he called equality of conditions, which doesn't mean everyone has the same size house and the same income. It means everyone is socially equal, or at least everyone wants to be socially equal. Everyone wants to have the same opportunities, to be able to go into the same worlds, to be looked at on the same level by their fellow citizens. Obviously, we fail at that. But the passion for it, that's what Tocqueville calls it, a passion. It's less of an ideal than an individual passion is the thing that struck him most. And I think it is the kind of fundamental American drive. And anything that violates it in the end is going to lead to social conflict and upheaval, and none more so in this country than the history of Black Americans as second-class citizens. And the video was one more graphic, undeniable piece of evidence for something that white Americans have spent a lot of time trying not to know. And in a sense, the purpose of the protest, the effect of the protest was to make it impossible for white Americans not to know it. And in that sense, it was a long time coming and it will always be with us. It's not going to be just 2020. It's part of a longer history that goes way back and that will continue into the future. The way that you describe this in the book, I get the impression that you have, as your answers now made clear, a tremendous amount of empathy with and sympathy for uh, those protests. And obviously, we're both horrified by the injustices that underlie it. You also seem to have a certain amount of skepticism about how that energy then transmuted in the wake of those protests, how it transformed from a broad-based social movement, as you're saying, the largest protests in American history, to something that seemed to be a preoccupation of elite, often white America, the way in which the focus of some of these discussions now is in elite private schools or in affluent foundations or in universities. Explain that shift and that concern to us. Yeah, and this is a, another example of a kind of collective failure that we, because it's a subject that Americans don't really know how to talk about, let alone how to address or solve, and less so now maybe than 50 years ago, instead, we've shifted the focus from, not completely, there's reform efforts going on around the country and in Washington, but somehow police reform and all the conditions in Black communities that create the injustices which are then dramatized by these videos of police brutality, all of that somehow got shifted away and it became almost a religious phenomenon, a secularized religious phenomenon in which white people were in some ways seeking to confess and to repent and to be absolved. And that took place much more in the professional world, in the world of professionals, than it did in the communities where the violence is worst. And it seemed almost like the bigger the critique, the more systemic the critique, and the word systemic became a key word of the year 2020, the more symbolic the answer, the more it came down to language, to gestures, to learning the right terminology, to making the right display of repentance and of asking for absolution. It had a kind of 
in some ways puritanical quality to it in that sense. And it also turned to theory, to French, German, and American intellectual theory that this generation that was at the heart of the movement had been learning in college. Theories of oppression, theories of identity, theories of race and gender, and the language of those theories and more the emphasis, the energy of those theories made it almost impossible for us to have a real conversation that would lead to real change and instead blame, guilt, fear, and witch hunting the energy of the streets turned to those things. And to me, that led to a kind of a dead end for what could have been a movement that was in some ways the successor to the civil rights movement. I don't think we are that society anymore. We don't have that amount of cooperation and trust, and we don't have institutions that are responsive to the things that the civil rights movement insisted on and forced responses to. We don't have coalitions. So all of the institutional and social weaknesses also showed themselves in what became of the protest movement, as it did with the pandemic. And so in some ways, I think it's a missed opportunity and, and maybe a tragedy to some extent that it seems to have everyone just tied up in knots rather than working together in a way that can construct something new. You've located two really interesting things here. The first is that, in a way, our inability to make real change on this has this resonance with our inability to deal with things like the deep economic and class divide in America, with things like our inability to deal with the pandemic, that they sort of stem from a similar lack of ability for collective action and so on. I think that's really astute. The second thing that I take from what you said is that there's a temptation for those who are horrified by injustice to emphasize its total nature, to claim that America today is not really any better than America was 25 or 50 years ago, and to say that white supremacy is such an omnipresent and mellifluous reality that, in fact, everybody is racist. And this is one of the core claims when you're talking about the theory that sort of came out of this movement and fueled this movement, it is the idea that, especially if you're a white American, but for that matter, also if you are a member of many other ethnic groups, you are by definition racist. This is not a matter of you're a bad person or you have ill intent or you haven't done, to use fashionable language, necessary work to improve yourself. You can have done all of those things and yet be a racist. For some of the leading authors in this school, they sort of proudly say, I am a racist, you know, in the way that a Christian might say, I am a sinner. And the worry I take it is that this is meant to be a way to be tough on yourself and to be tough on your country, but it's actually quite inimical to agency because, you know what, if I'm a racist, then perhaps it's not so bad if I have some racist thoughts. I don't have to be all that horrified by them because everybody is racist, which doesn't ring true to me. I, in fact, don't believe that I do have racist thoughts in my mind. And if I did, I would be horrified by them because I strongly wish uh, and identify as somebody who is not racist. And so I think there's a sort of odd logic there, right? We're all racist, so sure we're going to have racist for it. It's actually an odd self-indulgence that comes in the clothes of being tough of yourself. And of course, in the same way, if America hasn't made progress in 25 or 50 years, and white supremacy is always everywhere, then it doesn't look very likely that we're going to make progress in the next 5 or 10 or 25 or 50 years, and we may as well focus on these language games or these consciousness-raising efforts rather than on concrete action, which might actually improve the real opportunities and conditions of our fellow citizens in this country. I mean, skepticism about progress is both embedded in the theory that we're talking about, which upends the Enlightenment values that liberalism is built on, reason, objectivity, due process, equality and freedom of the individual, all of those things that people of my generation maybe grew up believing without too much questioning have been challenged, if not subverted, by a theoretical onslaught that has become the education of an entire generation. So partly there's an intellectual reason for this, but there's also a reason in people's lives, which is that the elites have screwed up again and again and again, whether 
in the post 9-11 wars, the financial crisis, the recession, Trump, who is, after all, a kind of elite himself. How is a young person born around 1980, 1985, supposed to accept without questioning the narrative of a gradually improving, more and more intermixed, more and more tolerant multiracial democracy? So in a way, they were primed to be skeptical, if not outright hostile to those ideas. But the problem is when you get rid of them or when you just challenge them nonstop, number one, you disarm yourself. You no longer have the ability to motivate either yourself or others to believe that progress is possible and therefore that action for progress is worth taking. And progress is not only possible, we see it all around us all the time. You have to really ignore a whole lot of evidence about life getting better for a lot of Americans if you want to say that there is no progress. And to talk of progress is hurtful, which is something that I've heard from time to time, that the speech police don't even like the word progress because it suggests that you're ignoring a whole lot of things. The other problem is you really do need a moral identity as a member of a community in order to do anything. And the largest community that we can identify with is the country. The world is too big to identify with. If you want to do anything on a really large scale, whether it's end global warming or stop racism or reverse inequality or empower people or restore democracy to health, you have to have a narrative that appeals to people's desire to fix it, which means some love of that community, some attachment to it, some attachment to the other members of it. That's something I don't see in the protests or in the generation that is so skeptical of progress. In fact, any talk of America as a place worth sacrificing for, trying to make better, even confessing some love for, that's not going to get you anywhere. But unfortunately, without that, you yield the ground to the worst narratives of the country, which are the racist narratives, the militaristic narratives, the exclusionist narratives. And that is part of what's happened and what's become clear in the last year is that without patriotism, to call it by its name, you keep ending up in a ditch, in a dead end. That seems convincing to me. There is something very strange about the way in which the desired locus of identification has shifted on the left, even over the course of my lifetime. When I grew up, and this was partially perhaps a function of Germany in the post-war period, but it was a broader phenomenon, certainly in Europe and to some extent in the United States, what was in vogue on the left was a kind of cosmopolitanism. It was the claim that we should have the same amount of solidarity and the same amount of fellow feeling with anybody in the world, wherever they are. I agree with you that that was ultimately unrealistic, that I'm somebody who's lived in many different countries and many different places. And I certainly have more than one country or more than one city that I care about deeply. But I care more deeply about those places where I've spent time, uh, those countries from which I have friends, uh, in which I have traveled than other no less deserving places and countries where I haven't had a chance to meet a lot of people, where I haven't had a lot of chance to spend time. Because there's just something natural about the fact that when you know something, when you've been somewhere, when you've grown up in a place, you have a deeper identification with it. I'd say not only that, Yasha, you chose to become an American citizen during a period when our reputation in the world was reaching an all-time low which means something other than really crass self-interest and careful calculation was driving you. It had to have been an attraction to something about this country that you felt answered a deep need. So to speak to that, I think I certainly realized that when I arrived in the United States, perhaps I was a little bit naive about the worst things in this country, that it was easy coming to New York City for the first years here and then studying at Harvard to be impressed by the natural way in which people from many different countries and groups and ethnicities and religions did cooperate, did sit in a classroom together, did debate about the world together. And that is the ideal of what America could be and could become. 
that I fell in love with. Now, I accept and I realize that the history of the last years have taught us that some of those spaces are more complicated than perhaps I realized as somebody who is fresh off a boat. And that many parts of a country look nothing like the streets of New York City or the seminar rooms at fancy universities. And I get that and I accept that. I do nevertheless feel that there's something strange about a left and something deeply contrary to its history and its nature. When it retreats from the cosmopolitan ideal, even though I too am somewhat skeptical of it, when it rejects the nation as a locus where we could say, we have something in common as Americans. You can be white or black, you can be brown or Asian, you can be from the Northeast or the Southwest, but actually as Americans, we're going to have some amount of solidarity with each other. And it doesn't come naturally, but we should be encouraging that and building that and hoping that this solidarity goes more and more deeply over time. Rejecting that and saying, the one thing we celebrate is every form of ethnic and religious identification. And even if you believe many of the authors that were the most best-selling of 2020, not only do we realize that some whites have a racial identity, which has often been so deeply problematic in the history of our country, we actually encourage a vision of a future in which whites have a more deeply racialized view of themselves, in which we say, yes, I'm a white person. That is my main feature and my main attribute because the only way we can conceive of society is as being forever composed of struggle between different groups. And we might hope that groups that have historically been oppressed end up winning out. But the path towards that is for well-intentioned whites to take on more deeply than we did in the past, a white identity. That seems to me to go counter to what the historical tradition of the left is, but also to answer your question, yes, to the vision of a society but I took America to be trying to build, that makes me still a proud American citizen. I think most people, especially younger Americans, don't feel that sense of solidarity with people on the other side of the country or from a completely different group. They feel alienated from one another. They don't have that sense of any national identity. But all you have to do is go abroad or meet someone who's just come from abroad to realize that there are fundamental things that make us American. James Baldwin wrote about how when he went to Paris in the 40s to get away from the prison house of race in America, the first thing he discovered was how American he was. And he discovered it when he met other white Americans. He said in one essay, I was as American as any GI from Texas. So one thing I've tried to do in Last Best Hope is catalog things that I think apply to us as Americans that are kind of national characteristics, which is a dangerous thing to do because you're generalizing and you're stereotyping and you're falling into all sorts of traps. But I, I felt it was necessary almost to go against the spirit of this time, which is to find all the ways in which we have nothing to do with each other. And as I listed some of these things, and some of them were really basic, like how quickly we go to first names with each other and how loud our voices are and how we smile very easily and have to say great whenever we're asked, how are you doing? And how we imagine that we can just move on to the next thing very quickly. Things that others, that foreigners say about us, how dense we are when it comes to other countries' social codes and the ways in which your position in that society determines, you know, whether you should accept or reject your host's offer of seconds at dinner. All of that is alien to us. And what I came to is all of these things describe what Tocqueville called the passion for equality, that we all want to be on the same level. And that doesn't mean we want everyone else to be on the same level with us, because, of course, there's a terrible history of inequality, but we want to be on the same level. So equality is one of the key words of the book and the desire for it as an animating force and how that shows up and how it can then lead to inequality, because in some ways we don't feel the connection to others that are present in older societies in which there's an aristocratic history and everyone has an interconnection based on their social place. If we're all at the same social level, there's no connection between us. And so our individualism runs rampant and inequality is the result. My feeling is, Yasha, that when we become as unequal as we are now, the idea of a shared citizenship collapses and self-government itself 
becomes difficult, if not impossible. We need that feeling of equality in order to feel as if we have something in common, some shared identity, some shared value, which is the basis for self-government. So those two things, self-government and equality, are linked. And I'm trying to find ways in which we can improve both the conditions of equality and what Tocqueville called the art of self-government, which is something you have to learn and practice and master. It doesn't come naturally. You know, what you said reminded me of a discussion I had with a really talented student of mine who's Mexican-American, her parents are undocumented immigrants. And she told me that she doesn't feel American and that she doesn't feel like people perceive her as American. I believe she may not be a citizen, so she's not, I suppose, technically an American citizen, at least. But what struck me in this conversation, I don't recall now whether she was born in America or whether she moved here at a relatively young age, is how completely American she was in cultural terms. That the way in which she politely but proudly disagreed with me, stood up for her point of view, was you know completely following the cultural script of how you engage in the classroom in the United States, which is very different from how you do that in Britain, very, very different from how you do that in continental Europe, that unlike me, she of course spoke without an accent and you know, expressed herself with great subtlety with American English idioms and phrases and so on. And there's something sort of interesting to me, both about the fact that when I pointed this out to her politely, she was utterly surprised by it. She had a self-conception of people would not see her as American. So the fact that that is how I perceived her was surprising to her. But also that in fact, you know, America has this integrative power in a way that some other countries don't. I want to ask you about your account of the nature of patriotism. And I ask because I've been thinking about that as I'm writing my next book. I have a chapter defending the need for patriotism in similar terms, for perhaps less eloquent terms than you do. But I explicitly say that while I strongly reject an ethnic conception of nationalism, one that says that what it is to be German or certainly what it is to be American is to be descended from you know, the right group of people, And while I am full of admiration for and embrace the civic conception of nationalism, that part of what makes us patriotic Americans is a set of shared political ideals, I think that doesn't go far enough because most people don't care enough about politics and don't know enough about the Constitution for that to really be at the heart of what it is to be a proud American. And that actually it is precisely the kind of cultural scripts that you invoke, exactly the kinds of things that made that student of mine come across as so American, exactly the things that we do have in common, the quick way in which we are to get to first names and the informality of American culture and so on. But it's those things about America that actually underlie a lot of the fellow feelings that most citizens do have, the way in which they do love their country. So what form do you think this kind of cultural nationalism, which isn't a nationalism of old costumes and pictures of a Mayflower or something like that, which is an appreciation of the lived reality of America and all of its diversity. What role should that play in our patriotism compared to the civic element? I'll answer that. But one thought I have is that you could say the pandemic was the final blow to American exceptionalism. There'd been many over the last, say, 20 years, but there is no longer any way you can claim that we are exempt from the brutal forces of history and that we are a shining light unto the nations and all the other ways in which American exceptionalism, for better and worse, has defined us in our own eyes and in the eyes of a lot of people around the world, again, for better and for worse. In a way, the pandemic liberated us to be another country, to have an identity like other countries, an identity that makes us different, not necessarily better, but distinct. And because we were all trapped with each other, I have this image that we were all quarantined with each other. And in in the book, I quote a woman I know who said of her own husband and children, they're not the people I would have chosen to be quarantined with. And we could say that about ourselves as Americans. I'm not sure I would have wanted to be with all these people and be unable to move and be unable to travel. But in a way, it was a sobering and enlightening experience because it gave us a long view of ourselves. We had to stand still and look 
and we never stand still. So we could see ourselves in a way more clearly during the pandemic and see what makes us distinct, what makes us a country. So in a way, the end of American exceptionalism, the pandemic, and the long look in the mirror are all conditions that I think give us this opportunity to see before we tear ourselves to pieces for the final time, what we would be losing if we continue in the direction we're going in, which is to think of ourselves as belonging to separate countries. And I think one thing we'd be losing is exactly what you're pointing to, which is a common culture. Culture is dangerous because it is actually cultural issues that are the least resolvable and the most divisive and the most core to identity. If we're talking about something like abortion or church and state or the rights of trans people, when those become the focal point, we become more and more of a divided country. But culture in the sense of just what makes us what we are, all those qualities I described earlier on. And in some ways that goes beyond the civic ideal. But I think it comes from the civic ideal. I think what Whitman called the fervid and tremendous idea. This is a phrase he used in his book, Democratic Vistas. He's saying it's not pecuniary interests. It's not material conditions. It's not the pursuit of wealth. It's the fervid and tremendous idea that holds us together. Now, you might say, okay, so we all believe in the Declaration and we think the Constitution is a pretty good document. Actually, it goes way beyond that. And it goes into how we see ourselves in relation to one another. And I come back to this idea of equality, that no one is better than anyone else. I am the equal of everyone I meet, which is a very Whitman-esque notion. That, to me, is something that has all sorts of ramifications in our culture, including in our crude pop culture, which has made it such as tremendously successful form of imperialism, because it's so readily available to everyone. The language it speaks is a lingua franca, and you don't have to really have any special knowledge or be brought up in it in order to see what makes it sweet and appealing. All those things that are part of our culture, I think, come back to the basic American sense that I am as good as anyone. That's a really interesting point, and I have to chew on it, that Yes, there is a civic element, and yes, there is a cultural element to American patriotism, but those are actually linked. That what you see as the defining features and the defining positive features of American culture do come from its civic ideals, that there is an interrelation and perhaps even a story of dissent there. I think that's very interesting. I think so. I think so. I might be wrong because I just thought of it. <laughs> and it's dangerous to reveal a first thought on the air. But yeah, I think that's right. Because I, you know, when you brought up culture, I got a little hesitant, like, oh my God, cultural nationalism, we're very close to some kind of supremacy of something or other that I don't want. But when you think of culture just as in the most broad and original sense, we do have a common culture. And all you have to do is meet an American abroad from anywhere in this country. And you know, we have a common culture. You may not have figured out exactly what it is. And of course, first of all, it doesn't have to, it right. shouldn't be a backward looking one. So it's not about the grand past of America for appreciation of a good parts of America and history certainly should be some part of it. It is an appreciation of lived everyday reality and future we're building together. But secondly, it doesn't have to come from a claim that American culture is somehow superior. I think you can be a civic patriot without thinking that America's constitution is somehow inherently superior to the French constitution or to the German Grundgesetz. You can be well aware of your family's deficiencies. You know them better than anyone, and you are more critical of them than anyone. But you are attached to your family because it's your family, not because it's better than other families. And you've done a survey of all families and decided that yours is the one that you're going to stick with. It's yours. And I think there's something going on there with patriotism too. Well, I'm very glad that you shared a new thought with us because the worst thing about podcasts and interviews is when the same people come on to say the same thing. And one of the real goals I have on this podcast is to have real conversations where I think new thoughts as I do every time with every guest and every, certainly every time I have you on, George. But also, of course, I hope that it elicits new ways of thinking, new thoughts in the people I'm in conversation with. Let me get to the outlook. The book you've written is a very tough one on the current state of America, an unflinching one. But it is called Glass Best Hope. Uh, its subtitle is America in Crisis, but 
also renewal. And as you write at the end, when you reflect on making America again, make America again is the title of your concluding chapter. You know, it's common these days to hear people talk about sick America, dying America, the end of America. The thought has crossed my mind more than once. But the same kinds of things were said in 1861, in 1893, in 1933, and in 1968. So how can we have these two thoughts in our minds at the same time? The deep crisis that America is in, but also the hope that we may be able to make America again, that there is scope for renewal in this country. And what would bring real renewal, not just a religious conversion or a way of rhetorically cleansing ourselves of sin, but something that actually would help to address the real problems in this country. The election was our chance to avoid what I think would have been really permanent downward decay and self-destruction. Another term of Trump, I don't think we would have recovered from that. I don't think we could have then come out of it and said, we're back. We saved ourselves by the skin of our teeth to give ourselves a chance to restore some health to this democracy. I see two places where we need to focus our energy. And it goes back, sorry, to Tocqueville. One is equality and one is self-government. We need to, and this is all policy, and believe me, I don't have original ideas. I'm not a policy thinker. These are ideas that are in the air. But there are a lot of policies, and some of them are actually very much what the Biden administration is doing, that can give enough of a foundation to people's material lives and enough of a restored sense of opportunity that we can look each other in the eye again as equal citizens, which we can't do now. That goes everything from mending the safety net to making it possible for parents to raise children while working, to equalizing the tax base of schools, to making it possible for poor children to get a good education and to get into a good college. And there are all kinds of ways that your listeners know about. And other guests of yours have probably put this in a lot more detail, a lot better than I do. So one half of the job is to restore conditions of equality. But the other half is to relearn the art of self-government, which is not something we're born with. And we've lost the feel for it. We've lost our mastery of it. I put a lot of blame on people like us in the media. I think the media has been in some ways a disaster for self-government in the last couple of decades, whether it's reporting dying out because it costs too much and instead everything is now opinion, whether it's a form of enlightened journalism that has now turned into activism and that actually doesn't really care about the objective world, but rather about advancing a cause, which I see every time I open the paper now, whether it's social media, which has all these perverse incentives to create conflict and to advertise yourself and to dunk on your enemies and to back scratch with your friends and really turns journalists into a kind of a noxious clique. So part of that last chapter is about how we need to restore journalism, whether financially and intellectually and morally, to the role of a civic institution that works for democracy and not against it. There are other ways too, and, and again, these are not original. National service, I think, would be a great way for young Americans to have to deal with one another from across all kinds of divisions for a year and do something for their country and be rewarded with a scholarship or with a grant or with training. I've recently written about civics education in America and how it's both fallen away because schools are afraid to teach civics because it gets politicized, but it's also become a huge political weapon in the hands of the right and the left. And there are some efforts now to make civics something that we teach more instructing students in how to think about American history and democracy rather than a set of facts and concepts, which I think is the right way, because we no longer know how to debate, how to argue, how to persuade, how to disagree. Instead, we either immolate ourselves in endless conflict or we go our separate ways. So all those things are ways to give us back that that very difficult aptitude 
for self-government, which is maybe the hardest thing to do. It is not an easy thing. It requires responsibility. It requires knowledge. It requires self-restraint because self-government is also about ourselves, our own character and what's in us. And so many of the incentives and forces today are driving us away from the ability to govern ourselves, both individually and collectively. So those are my two signposts, equality and self-government. And one of them is about material conditions and one of them is about how we think and how we live together. George Packer, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's always a pleasure, Yasha. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. 